The Korean Thrive Podcast, episode 124, The Legalities of Handmade Business with Christina Scalera, part one. Do you want to grow a thriving, profitable handmade business? My name's Jess Van Den, and I'm here to help you do just that. I took my own handmade business full-time in 2010, and since 2013, I've helped thousands of makers, just like you, create and grow successful handmade businesses. So, are you ready to thrive? Let's get learning. Hey Thrivers, Jess here. Well, I am, I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm enjoying the first rain we have had for months and I'm sure my garden is enjoying it as well. (laughs) And my tanks will hopefully be filling up. We live on tank water here and uh, we have two very, very, very big tanks and there's only two of us living here. So we hadn't run out of water, but it was getting down to a pretty low level. So I'm very happy and I know all of my neighbors and fellow uh, Malula people will be very happy that we've finally gotten a break after the dry, dry winter, which is pretty normal. It's uh, our climate. It's wet in summer and very dry in winter, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer than others to get rain. So I am very happy. If you can hear rain in the background, that is why. <laughs> so it's been a, a good few days. Although, you know what? It's really hard, isn't it, to get out of bed in the morning when it's raining, especially when it hasn't rained for so long and all you want to do is stay in there with a hot beverage and a book. Uh, but I managed it yesterday. <laughs> I didn't want to get up. Let's be honest. Sometimes we just want to stay in bed. But there are things to do, even when you're self-employed. Some days, you know, you just have to get stuff done. So that's been what's happening around my part. I've been hanging out with some lovely friends on the weekend. We had River Fire here, well, in Brisbane over the weekend, which is a culmination of the Brisbane Festival. And it's a big fireworks display that's been going for many decades now. I have memories of going to it when I was a little kid, my parents taking me to watch the fireworks for River Fire. And uh, so that was really fun. I also want to say a huge welcome to all our wonderful new Thriver Circle members. It's awesome to have you with us. And if you have been waiting, and I know some of you have (laughs) from the emails you've been sending me, for another chance to take Setup Shop, now is your chance. The course will be starting on October 16th. And you can sign up right now over on createandthrive.com to join us for the 30-day course that will help you to set up shop online. Now, this week, I have one part of a two-part episode for you. The reason it's a two-part episode is because we talked for so long, it ended up being like over an hour or something, and I decided it would probably be easier to split it into two parts. So that is what I've done. We've got part one this week and part two next week. And my guest is Christina Scalera, who is a lawyer from the United States. And she works in corporate law and she's very familiar with uh, how handmade businesses, creative businesses and the law interact. And so I was really happy to have her on the show to share her knowledge with you because I know this is something that a lot of us are completely confused about and a little bit worried about and a little bit stressed about at times as well. You know, the legal side of things. What about trademarking and copywriting and how do I protect my images and what do I need to do to make sure nobody steals my business name and do I need business insurance and if so, what is that all about, etc., etc. So there's a lot we'll there's a lot (laughs) we cover a lot in these two episodes uh we don't answer everything obviously but we we covered a lot of information about it so if you've ever had any questions or concerns about the legalities of your business please do listen intently to these two episodes 
And I would love to hear from you if you have follow-up questions or if there's a legal kind of a legal question uh, that we didn't answer for you. I would love to hear what it is because I think it's really important to find out about this sort of stuff and make sure that we're doing things right so that we protect ourselves and our businesses. So if you do have a follow-up question, you can leave it in the comments under the post uh, for this episode, the show note post, or you can always email me just at createandthrive.com or leave it on the Create and Thrive Facebook page, however you like. So let's dive into this episode with Christina Scalera. Hey, Christina, welcome to the show. Hey, Jess, thanks for having me. It's awesome. I'm really excited to have you on the show because legal stuff, man. It's something that everybody worries about. And most of us have absolutely really no idea about. And <laughs> and it's something that I think, you know, in our creative space can be a bit concerning or a little bit murky. Um, so I'm really happy to have you on the show so we can talk through some of that stuff and hopefully give everybody listening a little bit more clarity around the legal side of running a creative business. Yeah, for sure. And the questions that your audience is asking you, I mean, those are just phenomenal. So it, it sounds like they're they're really engaged in their businesses and looking towards the future, which is the good news. Absolutely. So thank, first of all, thank you to everybody who did submit a, a question. We're going to get through at least some of those today. Uh, but let's just let's start with some of the basics um, on a larger level, and then we can kind of use some examples um, as we go, perhaps from those questions. So what are kind of the main uh, legal issues that creatives face when they're starting and running a business where they're creating intellectual property and sharing it out there into the world? Yeah, I mean, I think you just nailed it. I mean, one of the first, so whenever people ask me, I I want to start a business, how do I do that? How do I know I started it the correct way? Um, You know, the correct way, most attorneys would not tell you this, but the correct way is to like, make sure you have a business first. So actually sell something, make sure it's something that you (laughs) want to do, make sure that you um, are working with the kinds of people that you like, because in your head, it might sound like a really fun exciting position to have like you want to be a calligrapher you want to be a jewelry designer but then you get into the nitty-gritty of it and you're like wow I I really don't like order fulfillment or (laughs) I want to travel and this isn't working out for me because I have to stay home and ship all these orders or something so I think you know the first step to starting any business is just starting Mm -hmm. and you know working out the kinks later but you know keeping the eye on the prize And looking at some of these legal issues, the earlier you can do that, the better off you're going to be. This isn't for advanced business owners to, um, you know, exclusively Mm -hmm. think about and consider in their businesses. This is definitely going to come full circle and help you if you can establish this from the very beginning. So, you know, I am an American attorney. And so one of the things that I always look to do is because we live in such a litigious society, say, How can we minimize our risk as business owners? Mm -hmm. And the number one way that I see business owners minimizing their risk is not just by, you know, keeping an eye out for this stuff, because you guys aren't lawyers for the most part. I'm sure there's a handful (laughs) of you out there that are like, no, I am. But, um, you know, for the most part, you guys are creators, you're photographers, you're designing things, you're selling things on Etsy. Um, And so it's really not fair to ask you to basically employ yourself as an attorney in your own business. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing that I I always try to help encourage my audience and and those of you out there that are interested in in reducing your liability 
um, I encourage people to get business insurance. And so business insurance is typically not the first thing that I've heard people recommend. Usually they say, get an LLC, form a company, register Mm -hmm. your DBA, or, you know, with your local licensing bureau or whatever. But, um, you know, to me, those things aren't as important because if, especially if you are in the U.S. or selling to a U.S. uh, customer base, um, with all the litigation that we do have, it's important to consider that at some point, it's not really a matter of, you know, if it's a matter of when someone's going to have a problem and just having that insurance in your back pocket is going to be really helpful because you're not going to be the one that's trying to scramble and find an attorney at the 10th hour. Your insurance company is going to be the one responsible for all that. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the only other thing to mention about that is most insurance policies, at least here in the U.S., um, I would imagine anywhere else in the world, too, just because it's more expensive, uh, they do not include intellectual property coverage. That is an additional, like, binder or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. I'm not an insurance salesperson. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you can get that for a couple extra $100 and that's, you know, in your budget, that's definitely worthwhile, Um, especially if you are using any kind of artwork that you're downloading from places like Creative Market or Etsy, um, you know, those kinds of clip art if you're using that in your graphic design. Um, But, you know, if you're creating everything from scratch, it's, it's not that there's zero risk, but there's very close to zero risk if you truly are creating everything from scratch. Um, that that you're ever going to run into some kind of intellectual property concern on the tr- on the excuse me on the copyright side of things, mm-hmm. um, you can still have some trademark problems. We can get into like what's the difference between copyrights and trademarks, but you know as a very basic baby business owner, um, you know whether you're an advanced business owner, you've had 20 years of business under your belt, and you're creating a new business, or you've never had a business, insurance is probably my first step. Um, in, in any kind of business and then, you know, starting to look at like, okay, well, you know, taxes, mm-hmm. liability with an LLC or any other kind of like entity in your, in your area, um, that would probably be the next step. So I think those are, I think that's like a really solid foundation if, if you guys can just so painful, I know, but like, <laughs> just, just do it. Do it in one day, rip the Band-Aid off, um, you know, find that insurance company. It might not be the Cinderella and you find the golden or the, the glass slippers <laughs> the next year, but at least having something is better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a bit about um, this idea of intellectual property. So when, uh, when we create something from, from scratch, as you said, it is our intellectual property. We have designed this thing. We have created this thing. And conversely, as you were saying, if we are a designer who uses other people's elements, perhaps we've purchased a commercial license um, from somebody to create an item from that design, or perhaps we've taken elements that someone sold and put it into ours and then resold it. You know, it can be a little bit tricky. And how do we how do we kind of protect our own intellectual property or can we even protect it? And how do we make sure we're not impinging on someone else's? Yeah, for sure. So this is this is where I think it's important that we have this conversation. And, um, you know, just to give you guys like a little behind the scenes, it's like nighttime where I am. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's like morning. Where yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so I think it's great that we're having this conversation internationally, because as Jess and I were talking before we got on the podcast, and one of the things that I was telling her is that 
it doesn't matter where you are located in the world. If a U.S.-based audience is viewing and purchase, viewing, but especially purchasing, because at that point you really have no excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if you know if you go in your Google Analytics and you can see that you know even one percent of your traffic is coming from the U.S., which I would I would think that probably most people do have that. Mm. Um, you know, you are subject to U.S. laws, and this is where I think it's helpful having a U.S. attorney on the line is is really um, kind of key because the U.S. has very, very stringent and well-established laws surrounding intellectual property. In fact, it's so much so that other countries tend to shape their laws around us, especially English-speaking countries. Mm. So, for example, um, U.S. copyright law, it's night as, as at the time we're recording this, it's 2017. So we were one of the first countries to, and I'm not like bragging on the U.S. or anything, it's just, <laughs> this is like fact. Um, I, I think there's a lot of good things about other countries that the U.S. does not adopt, but that's <laughs> a different topic. Um, but the fact of the matter is things that were created in 2000, so this year is 2017, anything created in 1923 and before is considered in the public domain in the United States. So if... Um, if let's just say you found a quote from Jane Austen and it's it's out there, um, I'm pretty sure she lived. I, I'm not sure exactly when she lives. You you Jane Austen fans are gonna kill me, but um, <laughs> but it, I know it was definitely sometime in the 19th century. And so quotes like that would be something that are considered in the public domain. So that does not that no longer has copyright protection essentially. Right. Um, contrast that with Australian law. So at the time of this recording. 1955 um, and earlier is in the public domain, and they just recently, in 2004, switched their laws to be more like the United States. So, you know, you might be selling a print on, let's just say it's an Australian author, right? Mm-hmm. And so they they passed away, let's just say, in 1954. It was some philosopher from the 1920s, in, or I don't know, 1940s in Australia, let's just say. Um, you take a quote from them, you put it on your Etsy Graphic, uh, if that if that is a quote that's registered with the U.S. Copyright Office or was recognized as as uh, work created by this author and it was shared in the United States at uh, you know created in the United States or something, um, there was some kind of protection that was attached to it. Mm. The guy was in the United States giving a speech when the quote happened, like something like that happened. It's I don't want to get like too <laughs> too nuanced or anything, but you know that's a situation where we could be looking at you're absolutely fine to sell in Australia, and there's no problem there, and his estate could be coming after you in the United States right. if you were selling to a state's crowd. So you know to be on the safe side, I I would think that most of you would want to adopt U.S. rules just mm. because you could have that you know especially with digital downloads or something like that, you could have a sale in the States. And at that point, um, you know, you're, you're not just subject to U.S. law, but people are going to start looking at you, even if you're a little tiny shop. Mm-hmm. So just like a little tip, because I used to work for, like, the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't judge me. I was just at a law school. I needed the job. But um, so I used to work in-house. And one of the ways that we would catch people that were using our trademark um, or, you know, our copyrighted designs or anything like that is they would literally have it in the title of their Etsy listing. Right. Okay. I mean, that's giving it to us. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this is really interesting. So 
I assume that goes for any creative, so artwork or anything else that was created before, was it 1923 currently? Was that the year? Something like that. Correct, yeah. yeah. So does that go for any creative thing, like books, artwork, uh, a quilt pattern, like anything like that? Or is it different depending on the creative sphere? No, it's anything that was authored. authored so that okay. could be a play, it could yeah. be a choreographed dance, it could be um, you know, a design, a quote. Okay, that's really interesting. So, yeah, so you're pretty much safe if you take anything of, of from before then and use it in your design or whatever. But if it's after that, people could come after you because they have somebody owns the copyright for that item, the intellectual property. Um, I'm just going to give an example here of how you this can go wrong for you because it happened to me <laughs> when I was a baby business owner and wasn't thinking about this sort of stuff. You just don't. You're just like, oh, it'll be fine, whatever. So this is the situation. I had somebody message me and I believe it was via um, an Australian site I was selling on and it was an Australian customer. And she's like, I would like a pair of earrings that one is Pac-Man and one is a ghost made out of silver and I'm like oh that sounds really fun so yeah why not you know not thinking about that somebody owns the intellectual property of Pac-Man um made them sent them to her that was all fine but I I liked like it was fun and I'm like I'm just going to put this up in my shop what happened about a month later I got a email a cease and desist email saying because I I I was be not be not as stupid as I was I put it in my title because I didn't even think about it um, and they found me and said, look, you have to get take this down because it's somebody else's property. And I was like, oh, my God, like you freak out because you think someone's going to come <laughs> after you. Um, but honestly, generally speaking, um, if you take it down, you know, and remove it from sale, I think usually you're as a small business owner, you're probably going to be OK as long as you don't try to argue with them. Um, that's my my feeling on the matter anyway. They just want to stop people from profiting from their intellectual property, which is fair enough. So, yeah, I took it down, didn't have any problems. But this this makes me think of, like, all the people out there who are, like, making, I don't know, Doctor Who stuff or Star Wars stuff. Like, what what's the deal there? Like, are they going to get themselves in trouble? Yeah, so you bring up two interesting points. One is the doctrine of first sale, which – uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure if it exists in Australian law or not, but it exists in the U.S. market. So, you know, again, like looking to that as the gold standard mm-hmm. and what just what I have my training in. Um, I, I'm comfortable talking about that, and we can talk. I'd, I'd like to discuss that, but then also, I, it's an important point in that um, copyrights are different from trademarks in that they do not continue to exist if we you know you as a trademark owner don't police them and and get those confusingly similar things <laughs> shut down now it's it's kind of been taken to an extreme as you saw like that's mm. i'm not sure that anybody would confuse pac-man earrings for like actual pac-man merchandise mm. but you know i'm sure that's their argument um so it's it's kind of you know that that's like a whole political discussion. It's kind of gone off the rails in some ways, but at the same time, um, you you did bring up an important point, which is just that like that's usually what happens. I can't promise that that's what's going to happen a hundred percent of situations, but you get the scary letter, you get the message, like whatever it is, and you know for the most part, it's just not worth it for people to go after the infringer, um, like you said, unless unless there's a lot of fight back because mm. you know why why are you fighting back like there might be something different here there might be a big sale of yours and mm. in that case they're like oh there's money here right and so the the root cause of any legal problem is 
not on the criminal side, but on the civil side, right? Like, so you're not mm-hmm. going to jail, but, um, you know, it, on the business side of things basically is money and communication. So if we have any kind of money issue where there's money at stake, if someone stands to gain a lot of money, lose a lot of money, um, those generally lead to legal problems and then a lack or a breakdown of communication. So mm-hmm. we see that with um, like contracts where you're in a contract with someone, they think it says one thing, um, you think it says a different thing, and then that's the breakdown of communication that ends in, in some kind of legal problem, usually with money mixed in. Right. Um, but to go back to this like first sale thing, so what happens is when we have intellectual property, like, like you're talking about, so Pac-Man... Um, I don't know, but for this example, I'm going to assume it's a registered trademark of whatever, Hasbro or whoever Mm -hmm. owns it. And one of the things that's important to consider is that the, um, they, they probably, and again, like, I don't, I don't know all the facts. I can't give legal advice. I can just kind of (laughs) talk about what you've told me. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I would venture is that they probably would not have had a problem if it was just you selling Pac-Man earrings and calling it like video game earrings or something, it was probably the use of the name that not only tipped them off, but they had to have a problem with because they were, they were at a a risk of losing their rights if they didn't say anything. So um, with the doctrine of for sale, for example, if you were to purchase the Pac-Man, like, I don't, I don't know what it was, but like maybe like little beads, right? Mm -hmm. Like Pac-Man beads or Pac-Man, um, fabric or something like that, that's completely fine. And you're allowed to use that until the cows come home. It's just, as you notice in this situation, when it was called Pac-Man earrings, I think they probably had a bigger deal with the name than they did the actual subject because there's, there's no, there's nothing that they could have done with Mm -hmm. you just using Pac-Man beads. Um, so, you know, I hope that that can ease some some fear there if you're making like clutches and and you're thinking oh my gosh like I'm making these Pokemon whatever purses or clutches or bags mm. out of this Pokemon fabric and now I'm going to get sued by again Mattel or whoever owns Pokemon and that's not true right like if you're buying fabric that fabric creator has licensed hopefully <laughs> and if they haven't it's their fault right. but um, you know license that design or license that character from the proper person so that's that's what the doctrine of first sale says that you can start using it so you bought it there was a first sale and now you're using it okay so that's effective. so if you're yeah so if you've bought something from someone else with a character or a, a trademark thing or whatever it's okay to then use it and resell it but what if you're creating something from scratch like for me with the earrings i made they were literally made out of just silver wire into the shapes of the Pac-Man and the ghost. So I didn't actually, you know, I created something in those shapes, but I hadn't paid to license that thing. So like, what about people making say um, their own fabric or fan art or something like that, where they're using the characters, but they're not actually, you know, they haven't actually paid the licensing fee to use the characters or the, 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 the words. So this is an interesting thing. I think you were pointing out that, Pac-Man have probably trademarked the name Pac-Man. And so by using that word, I was infringing upon their trademark. Correct. Yeah. So copyrights, and again, they they may have a design mark for some kind of Pac-Man. So, you know, would it be confusingly similar wire versus like some illustration? Mm -hmm. I think they would have a pretty uphill battle to fight on that (laughs) one. Um, You know, but at the same time, 
um, there's always things that, that, that we as creatives can do to kind of um, lessen that risk. So not using the name, um, creating something that truly is unique. So I, I again, I don't know, and I can't give advice, but mm. what I can say is that it sounds like your designs were significantly different. And I'm not even sure that like if you just saw them on the street, without any kind of context or title, if, mm. if you would know that it was like Pac-Man um, or if you might just think that it was like some kind of artistic thing. And then, you know, the, the real standard of, or sorry, the real standard of infringement for trademarks um, is a likelihood of confusion, at least in the United States and in Australia and I believe in the UK as well. So mm-hmm. if, um, you know, if there's no risk of confusion, if there's like a disclaimer that says this is not a product that's created by Hasbro or whatever, um, or, you know, it's just very clear to the consumer that there is no connection between the two. So, for example, one of my favorite podcasts is called the Unofficial Shopify Podcast. <laughs> and I I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming Shopify has no problem because they've sent several of their, you know, reps and stuff like that onto the show. All right. Um, and you know, if it was called the, um, you know, the Shopify fan podcast, that that might be a different story. But because it's clearly stated as the unofficial Shopify podcast, you know, directly from the title, that that is not (laughs) Shopify is a registered trademark, but the unofficial Shopify podcast has nothing to do um, with Shopify other than the fact that it's talking about it. So, you know, if it was like the video game earring series, that's a different story than saying, you know, the Pac-Man earring series. Right. So you should perhaps cover yourself by making it clear, say in the item title or description that this is unofficial merchandise. If you are creating something that is, you know, create related to some sort of geek culture or whatever. I can't say for sure if you should or not, because I don't, I don't know the facts of everybody's situation. So I don't want people to like blanket apply this (laughs) sort of situation. Um, but I think these are good guiding principles that mm. you can at least think about as you're creating your, your shop listings or selling your products um, and just being cognizant of, of where they're being placed, right? Like if it's on the internet, you just have to assume that anyone could see it. So, you know, if anybody could see this, what do you need to do to protect yourself and kind of CYA? Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I'm allowed to cuss on here, but, um, you know, how, how do you cover your, your hiney and part of that is making sure that people aren't confused. They don't, they don't think that, you know, your, your, your earring shop is associated with whatever Disney or Hasbro or one of those companies. And, um, you know, just making sure that from just like a purely insider perspective, I would personally never use the name, um, of, of something that I thought could be a trademark. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the 101 Dalmatians or, you know, um, the Little Mermaid, or you know, like whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're, especially with Disney, you're just asking for it. <laughs> um, but you know, so I, I think those are just helpful guidelines, mm-hmm. and I, I can't say that that's going to absolutely protect someone. Um, I'm sure there's always going to be an exception, or you know, someone's going to misinterpret what I say a little bit, and so yeah. I, I don't want to say like point blank, this is what you have to do. Of course, um, but certainly those are going to put you in a better situation um, from the get go than just saying like Pokemon earrings and leaving it at that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So let's talk about um, when you start a business and you have a business name and, you know, uh, the stuff associated with that. Is there any inherent protection there? Or like, you know, my business, my jewelry business name is Ethereal. It's a word I created. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, however, I haven't, I haven't put the money into trademarking that word because I figure, well, do I really need to, or, you know, is it, can somebody just then steal that and use it and, and try to, um, you know, take over my business by using that word or with, you know, do I have any inherent protection just by the fact that I've created it? This is such a great question, Jess. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) I'm a trademark attorney, so I have the contract shop, and that's kind of like DIY. It's not a law firm. It doesn't provide legal solutions, but Mm -hmm. my law firm, all I do is trademarks because I'm just so passionate about names and branding and just protecting them and and finding good ones for people that, um, you know, are worried that they might be infringing on someone else. So I love all this. I love the strategy behind it. And um, we have a scale of, of names. So mm-hmm. it's the same thing in, in, the, in Australia and the UK as it is in, in the US. Um, I know for sure in Australia and the US, trademarks are based on common law use. And what that means is as long as you know, you've, you've done a clearance search and there's nothing else out there, the, one of the best things to do, again, I'm, I can't give legal advice, mm-hmm. but um, one of the best things to do is if, if there is no reasonable concern that you're infringing someone's mark, so maybe you've done a search, maybe you've hired an attorney to do a search for you, um, maybe you've made up a name mm-hmm. and it's just like completely made up, those are the kinds of situations where I'm really comfortable with a client or you know myself going forward um, with that name because there's a very low likelihood of um, confusion, of infringement. It's the situations where we have either, um, so I guess I should back up. There's a there's kind of a sliding scale of how strong your name is. Mm-hmm. And at one end, we have really, really generic descriptive names. So if you sell red buckets and you call yourself the mm-hmm. red bucket company, that's going to be something that is going to be very, you could, um, but it's going to be a very long uphill battle to find yourself in a situation where you own a trademark registration for the Red Bucket Company if you literally sell Red Buckets. Right. So then we move up the scale a little bit, and we move into an area that we consider to be arbitrary names. Um, or sorry, let's let's back up. So so we have the generic and the descriptive, and then we move up to uh, suggestive names. So these are like the play on word type names. Mm. Um, in the U.S., we have a company that's called Nothing Bunt Cakes. Like <laughs> Bunt Cakes. Um, you know, so we can kind of figure out from the name of Nothing Bunt Cakes that they sell Bunt Cakes. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, and they just put the word nothing in front of it. So that's pretty suggestive. That's something that is a little bit stronger as far as protection goes uh, if we're thinking about naming our company, but it's still not great. So then we move up into the arbitrary category. And so the arbitrary category is like Macintosh for computers. Mm-hmm. Macintosh is a word that exists. It, it, it refers to apples and you know <laughs> you have Apple, Macintosh, whatever. So the, that's a word that already exists, but before, you know, 1990, nobody knew of a Macintosh, well, maybe that, that famous commercial was in the 80s, so I take that back, but like mm-hmm. in the 1960s or whatever, nobody knew or knew to associate a piece of fruit with some kind of electronic device. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe that's quite different, but, um, you know, the, the point is still the same, that you can take some kind of arbitrary object that has no association with your business name your, your business after that. And, um, that's, that's the second most strong form of a name that you could choose. 
Um, and then at the very, very end of the scale, we have really strong marks, which are things that are completely made up. So, you know, in the United States, we have a gasoline company called the Exxon Mobil Corp. Yeah. And Exxon is just a made up word. It never existed. They, they created that. Um, Kodak is for camera stuff. They just made that word up. Mm. So those are the strongest. And so it's inversely correlated, which is just a fancy word to say it's, it's like totally opposite of how easy it is to build your brand, right? So it's really, really easy to tell people I'm the Red Bucket company and get people <laughs> buying Red Buckets. They know immediately what they're getting. But, you know, over time, those stronger marks are going to be um, more valuable because there's just not going to be anything like them. It's going to it's going to be immediately apparent and obvious if someone is infringing you because you know, there's no other word like it and someone's mm. just popped up with a word that sounds or looks like your name. So that's that's kind of what is there to consider if you are thinking about naming your company. Now, as far as when you should get out there, it, it really depends on what else already exists. So the mistake that I see most people do is um, they will register their business with the state or the government and they think they have a trademark. That's not that that's not necessarily true. You mm -hmm. might have some common law rights to use that name, but you don't have like a trademark registration. It hasn't really been like vetted. Um, and in the U.S., I mean, that's almost like a non-consideration. I mean, that's like the last thing that I even look at in my mm -hmm. trademark searches because, for example, um, the name of one of my companies is called RPCS Holdings, and the name of the company or the the public name and the trademark of the company is Creative Empire. So it's like. Right. You know, the name of your company doesn't matter. It's it's what's actually on the, the letterhead, what's on the logo of your website. Mm -hmm. That's a trademark. So, you know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to make like a blanket statement and say like, just go out and do it. But the <laughs> earlier a trademark can be used because mm -hmm. we have these common law protections that say, you know, you were using it first, essentially. Yeah. Um, the earlier you can use a trademark, typically the better because you're you're basically bookmarking that date and time and saying this is the date that I started using it or you know this is the date that I started selling it which is really the more important date yeah um, and so you know even if you can't afford a registration and all the benefits that come with that at least if if you're not just you just but like just generally yeah. you guys out there if you're using a name um you know, let's say you started using it today and somebody came along tomorrow and they sold, you sold your first product today, they sold their first product tomorrow, even though it was that close, you're going to have priority and, you know, they could try to go for a registration, they could even get a registration, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's within a certain time frame, um, and I'm in the process of doing this with several clients right now, that that registration could be canceled because of the person who has priority. So it's right. really important to start using a name as early as you can with the caveat that, you know, you could be infringing. So you, you have to do your due diligence and, and research what's out there. That's really, really interesting and really helpful. Thank you. Because, I mean, for me, that's a it's pretty obvious. You know, I've been using the name for 10 years and if somebody tried to come along and use it, I'd be like, ah, hello, here's all this common <laughs> law, ex uh, you know, history and examples of me using this so I could shut that person down and, you know, they wouldn't be able to use it. Uh, so that's helpful to know. Definitely. Um, yeah, there's one other thing. Yeah. And I don't know if Australia has this. Um, and I'm, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I would assume they have something similar. 
there is a way to bookmark a name. So if you're not quite ready to launch and put a product out there mm-hmm. in the U.S., um, and like I said, international market, even if you're selling elsewhere, you can get a U.S. trademark. And in the U.S., there's something called a 1B, like one is a one boy, mm-hmm. 1B, um, or an intent to use. It's the same thing. Um, but there's a 1B registration, and that's really helpful because you can basically apply. It's an extra $100, so, you know, like 375 total usually. Um, American dollars, not Australian. (laughs) I think it's a a little um, more expensive for you guys, but based on the conversion rates right now. Unfortunately. um, (laughs) Yeah. But but that is a way to bookmark something, and and those deadlines can be extended, of course, for a fee that the United Mm. States Patent Trademark Office is happy (laughs) to extend those for you. But um, at least that's an option. So, you know, if you came along, again, just generally you Mm -hmm. out there listening, and registered something as a 1B application, that um, that registration, or sorry, that filing date takes priority over the person who came along the day after you filed that and started using it and and selling something in commerce. So right. that's where that little bookmark is kind of like a backdoor and, mm-hmm. and a like nice little tool that you can use. Make sure to tune in next week for part two of this episode, The Legalities of Handmade Business with Christina Scalera, my guest. If you want to find out more about Christina, do head on over to her website, thecontractshop.com, to find out more about her and what she does. And make sure to tune in next week because we're going to talk about things like what if you make a design that you discover is similar to someone else's or what if somebody else is making something similar to you? Mm. What about inspiration? What about copying? Um, how about protecting your brand? What is branding all about? Um, you'll find out about the Digital Millennial Copyright Act, which I had no idea about, and it's very, very useful and awesome. Uh, I talk about my own content being used without credit, as an example, and more. So we also talk about watermarks. Oh, watermarks. <laughs> so don't miss that episode. It'll be out next week, episode 125. Also, remember, if you're wanting to join me for Setup Shop, head on over to createandthrive.com look for the links to the course and you can sign up right now to join me for setup shop in october and november and work out exactly how to set up an online shop for your handmade business i'm jess van den this has been another episode of the create and thrive podcast and goodbye for now